Well, Aaron and I have a favorite time of the year. I really shouldn't even call it a favorite time of the year. I should call it a favorite hour of the year. Four o'clock to five o'clock at our cabin in the summertime. We sit on the porch on Adirondack chairs and we have a plate between us. And on the plate is a smorgasbord of fresh fruits, smoked meats, chocolates, and a glass of wine. But the best thing on the whole plate is this white cheddar cheese. It's called Monte More Saratori Creamery Plymouth, Wisconsin white cheddar cheese. We call it love cheese. That's how much we like it. And there we are enjoying this smorgasbord of food in the summer looking upon Lake Huron. Well today we are going to see a vision of a summer smorgasbord of fruit. And this fruit is a way to symbol the life that was happening in Israel at that time. But the truth is, it was not a life of innocence. That fruit was a symbol of the end of Israel. As bountiful as it might look, it was a sign that Israel was going to be judged by the Lord. So could, could a supposed bounty not be a picture of blessing, but might be a sign of judgment to come? Let's find out, shall we? Amos chapter 8. If you're going to hear anything, I want you to hear from God's word. Let's hear what he has to say to us this morning. It's beautiful. It's poetic. Please pay attention as we look at Amos 8. It's printed in your worship guide. You also find it, of course, in your Bibles. I'd say it's two-thirds of the way in. Amos chapter 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in, the de in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may take the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chafe of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on, their account, on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it? 
and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declared the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth in every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, welcome. Welcome to the book of Amos that we've been going through for the past couple months. And David and I have felt the weight of this book preaching it because we feel like this book is just judgment, judgment, judgment. And we feel harsh about it because especially in this time, we feel that we're just being beat up and this might add to it. I was in a call this week with my Old Testament professor from seminary the one who has wrote much on the book of Amos that just came out with the New International Commentary of the Old Testament. On the book of Amos, his seminal work he's worked on for 20 years, very thick, very good. And we were talking about Amos together. And I was lamenting, preaching this book to my congregation, a book that he told me I should preach at some point. I said, why did you ask me to preach this book? He said, he gave me some good encouragement. He said, Dan, you have to realize that the prophets, they're not simply mentoring the people or shepherding the people. They are announcing the judgment of God. And you as a pastor live in a tension. The tension that you are preaching this prophetic voice of judgment from the prophets. But at the same time, you are living with your congregation, shepherding them through the book. I said, how, well, how do I communicate that? How do I tell the congregation this tension that I'm living in, that I'm preaching this book of Amos, and also I'm trying to shepherd and love them as we read this book? He said, just tell them that. Well, here I am. I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that I, too, am wrestling with the message of this book. How do we as a church live this out? How does this happen in practice? How are we motivated from this book to live differently as the church? And it hits hard. And how sometimes we have failed in our obligation as the church collectively, corporately. Not just our church, but the church in America. But Dr. Carroll didn't leave me with that. He said, you know, Dan, the great news is that you get to preach the whole counsel of God. 
that you just don't have to stick in the prophets. He says, I love the prophets, but there's more to it than that. That's why I'm excited that in January we'll start the book of Acts. And there we will see what it looks like for a church to come into fruition. And how do we get on the ground to live out what we're learning in the book of Amos? So it'll be a little bit more concrete, a little bit more how we put this into action. So excited for that. So look forward to that. But right now, we're not there. We're in the visions of Amos in the last few chapters of this book. There are five visions from chapter 7 through chapter 9. We saw three of them last week. David gave them to us. Locusts. We saw fire. We saw a plumb line. But today we're going to see one. Summer fruit. You might think, well, summer fruit looks innocent enough. Right? Here is this picture of a woven basket full of figs and grapes and pomegranates. It's a time of feasting after the summer harvest. That's innocent. But I think that's the point. Israel thinks they are in innocence. They think they are feasting. But little they know that the harvest is coming for them. And the Lord God uses an amazing Hebrew kind of play in words to get the people's attention through this vision of summer fruit. It's a Hebrew word. Summer fruit is kayak in Hebrew. And the word end in Hebrew is kek. But this is what's interesting about being in the north versus being in the south part of Israel. In the north, they have a certain dialect and they use vowels in a certain way. It would be like us in the north and the south. Some people say aunt. Some people say aunt. Some people in the north, we like to say oil, like it's two syllables. And then in the south, they say ol, right? Like it's one syllable. Or caramel, or caramel, or rout, or root. You know, all these different things, right? That's a similar thing here. Here's this southern prophet, Amos. And he goes to the north, and he then uses their dialect to say, hey, that word summer fruit is also the word end. A basket of summer fruit, he sees. The end has come upon my people, Israel. He's giving them a picture through this fruit that it is the end of Israel. What does he say will happen? It says the Lord will never pass by them. Again, these are references to the Exodus and to the plagues. You remember the last plague was that the firstborn of the Egyptians would be killed and the Lord would pass by the Israelites because of the blood on the doorposts. But this is what God says, I will not pass by you now. What? Instead? No, there are many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. That innocence that you think you're living in, you know, that you're singing these songs in the temple, 
No, they shall become wailing. See, their religion, their way of life, had utterly failed to alert them to a God that desires justice. Therefore, this fact would spring upon them to make them realize that they were diametrically opposed to God and their outcome would be their end. And that's what happens, as we've talked about many times, 40 years later, Assyria would come and destroy Israel and the northern kingdom would be no more. But what have they done wrong? We've talked about this many times as we've gone through Amos, but again, it's going to be talked about again in verses 4 through 6. So let's camp there for just a little bit. What are they doing wrong? Okay, remember, this is a very prosperous economic time in Israel. Also, religion is doing very, very well. People are going to worship in many different places. But as much as it looks economically good, as, long, as much as it looks religiously good, there are some in Israel that are suffering. Verse 4, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. And here's a picture of their, they are feasting, the new moon festival, they have these things that they're worshiping God. They're thinking, oh, here I am. I'm worshiping the Lord. But in the back of their mind, when they're at the church service, hopefully none of us think about anything else but God when we're right listening to the sermon. I'm sure our mind trails on the rest of the day or the game that's going to happen on. That's what they're doing. They are thinking, oh man, I'm here worshiping, but I could be making money right now. I could be making a profit. On the day of the Sabbath, when they're supposed to be thinking about God, thinking about how they care for others, instead they're thinking, how am I going to make money from others? And this is what they're doing to make money. They are making the ephah small. It's like a basket where you would give people the grain for money. So they make a small basket. So when people pay, they give them a smaller amount than they actually deserve. And then what do they do? And the shekel, great. And here, what is happening there is they're making unbalanced scales. So what they're doing is they're actually, when people bring them grain or when they bring a product to them, they're balancing them wrong so that they have to give more money to them than actually they're supposed to give. This is the injustice that's happening. And because of that, the poor are becoming more and more oppressed in such a way that now the poor are able to be bought into slavery with silver, and also are being bought with something as simple as a sandal. That's how bad it's gotten. That you could buy someone with the price of a sandal. Here they drive up prices. They buy slaves. They give them instead of grain, they give them the chafe. They give them the outside of the grain. This is how bad it's become. 
And you think that they might be in their high places worshiping and hearing the law, hearing the Scriptures, while this is still happening, when God is telling them the picture that He wanted for Israel in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, He wanted a picture of justice where there is no slavery. Slavery is outlawed in the law. Also, after seven years, all debts should be forgiven. After 49 years in the law, it says all the land that was taken from a family should be returned back to them. This is not happening. And because of that, the rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poorer and there is injustice in the land. If I could condense it into the message that the Bible is trying to tell us, that Amos is trying to communicate to us. Righteous people, just people, disadvantage themselves to advantage others. While wicked people are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Are we righteous? Are we just? Amy Jo Hutchinson, a single mom, went to Congress to testify about her situation. And this is what she said. I can tell you about food insecurity. In the nights I went to bed hungry so my kids could have seconds. I can tell you about being above the poverty line and nursing my gallbladder with essential oils in prayer. About chewing on cloves and eating ibuprofen like Tic Tacs for toothaches because I don't have the money for health insurance and can't afford a dentist. I have two jobs and a bachelor's degree, and I struggle to make ends meet. Here's the thing, she says, children aren't going to escape poverty as long as they're relying on the head of a household who is poor. Poverty rolls off the back of parents and right onto the shoulders of our kids despite how hard we try. I cashed in a, a jar full of change the other day so my daughter could attend a music competition with her school band. I can't go grocery shopping without a calculator. I had to decide which bills to not pay so I could make this trip. Believe me, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps so many times that I've ripped the damn things off. What's your reaction to that? Is he telling me we need to raise the minimum wage? Is he saying we should have higher taxes? I bet he voted for Joe Biden reading those things. I've said nothing of that. The question is, what are we doing as the church? Where are we in those situations? 
This situation is complex. Dealing with poverty and generations of sin is hard and difficult. And I am proud of our church for making some inroads, like mentoring children at Jefferson Elementary that have been living in cycles of poverty in broken families for generations. That we come alongside families the best we can in word and deed. But I believe being in this space, being downtown, might be an opportunity for us. I've been pounding through books as I've been going through Amos, and I'm going to highlight some of you that are looking for concrete ways that how are we going to do this, that maybe we will then review this winter and this spring as we go through Acts. What do we do? So I'm going to give you some of them. People have on video, you want to write these down, great. You guys want to write them down, some books that I think are good. I'll show a couple of them. One here is uh, Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. It's by Brian Fickert, also the writer of When Helping Hurts, which I think is one of the best books on uh, dealing with the poor uh, and just helping the needy in the church. So this is a good one. Also the book Kids by Robert Putnam outlines what's happening in America right now. Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, if you're more of a storyteller kind of person. Uh, J.D. Vance uh, tells about his own upbringing in a broken home in, um, in Ohio and West Virginia. Actually, the movie's coming out this week, Hillbilly Elegy. If you don't even like to read, you can watch the movie, right? So uh, that's coming out. Um, Generous Justice by Tim Keller, the Pope of the PCA. Uh, is good. Sorry, we don't have a Pope. Just joking. But Tim Keller, good stuff. Um, this is a lot of the ideas that I got from Amos comes from this. Some of the quotes I give that I'll give right now is from this book, Generous Justice. So those are some books that you might be able to look at. Here's what Keller says in Generous Justice, which I think applies very, very well to what we've been going through throughout this whole book of Amos. If you are a Christian and you refrain from committing adultery or using profanity or missing church, right, that's you. But you don't do the hard work of thinking through how to do justice in everyday life, you are failing to live justly and righteously. Guilt, 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 that's all this book is. These issues of dealing with poverty are not issues that just came along with Karl Marx. Didn't just come along with 20th century liberal Christianity or the social gospel. Even before this, these questions and pushback that we would have about giving to the needy, giving to those that are broken, those questions have existed since the beginning of time. In fact, a 19th century Scottish minister was wrestling with this kind of issue in his church. 
the objections against giving to the poor. And he said, I want to motivate you, church, not by guilt, but through the gospel. And here is a portion of the sermon that he gave. We still tracking? You going to listen to this? Here we go. This is good. He says, now, dear Christian, some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If that is so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. But here is your objections. Your first one is this, my money is my own. What if Christ answered in that way and said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. There, where should we have been if he had answered in that way? Then you might object and say, the poor, they are undeserving. Imagine if Christ had said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, Christ did not say that. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Ejection three that the Scottish minister heard from his congregation. The poor may abuse it. Imagine if Christ answered in that way. If Christ might have said the same, he said yes. With far greater truth, he would have said, Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet. That most would despise it. That many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet, he gave his own blood. And this is how the Scottish minister ended. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and to the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money that I want, but your happiness. Remember Christ's own words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And here is the problem. In Israel, they are living in worship. They are hearing the goodness of God, how he delivered them from Egypt in slavery. And how he saved them. And now they enslave their own people. In the same way as we as the church, do we live in that, knowing of God's goodness that he came down to us, condescended to us, saved us, poor and wretched people. And he did not ask any of those questions, oh, what will they do? No, he gave his life willingly and freely and happily. Would we do the same for the poor and oppressed among us? And this is why it's the end for Israel. It's the end because they boast in their arrogance. We've been given land. We've been given a name. And that's why the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, 
I'm the one that gave you the land. I'm the one that gave you the name. I will not forget my name. I will not forget my covenant. I will come after those that have been oppressed. I will come to the land I gave you and I will shake it. He will not put off the day of judgment. The end will come. Now in verses 9 through 14, he gives three oracles. The three oracles are a picture of what that day will be. They go the day, the day, the day. I think Paul is borrowing a lot on this language from Amos in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, what happens to this this culture that he's living in in the Roman Empire? He says that God will give them over or give them up to their desires. Here is a picture of what Israel will look like if they continue in their ways. If God just gives them up and lets them do what they want to do. I'm going to focus on two of the oracles, 11 and um, 12 and 13 and 14. The first one talks about a famine in the land. And then in our mind, we think famine, no food, no water. No, the famine that he is talking about is a famine of the words of God. See, it has been God's goodness that he has given Israel the prophets. That the prophets have come and given the words of God. But now the day will come where the prophets will not come anymore. They will not even hear the word of God. That will be gone and they will search north and south, east and west, all over the land to hear the words of God. But they will not be there. They will be totally gone. And this will be very, very bad. Surely, in America, we cannot have a famine of the word, right? How could we have a famine of the word in America? I mean, when I tell you to look at your Bibles, what do you do nowadays? You just pull it up. Right? It's all right there. I mean, I have so many Bible versions now and books. I mean, they're all over my house. You can find a Bible anywhere you want to go. The Gideons give them out like candy. I mean, there's no dearth of the word of God in the United States. I think that is the great trick of the enemy. That Bibles are everywhere, but they sit on shelves. They're one-liners on Facebook posts. They're on our fridge, but do they actually penetrate our hearts? We hear sermons where people reference one verse, and then they go off on their tangent about what should be done in the world. Where they cherry-pick passages well, they do not look at the whole counsel of God, where we listen more to self-help from the pulpit than we actually listen to the Word of God. That we would rather listen to our news feeds than to hear God's Word. We'd rather hear from Facebook than hear from the Psalms. That we would rather hear from the political prophets of our age than rather than hear from the prophets of the Bible. Oh, preacher, preach. You just love this, right? That's what you do. The famine of the word, because that's what your profession is. This is not just me saying what the problem of the famine of the word is. 
By now, maybe I've triggered most of you into seeing the Netflix documentary, Social Dilemma. I've referenced it before, I'll reference it again. What it basically is, these former social media execs came up with this problems of what's happening in social media. These are guys, Pinterest guys, Facebook guys, Google guys, saying this is a problem that we're seeing with social media in our culture. And one of the major things that they point out as the problem is that social media wants you to pay attention to it, to look at it constantly. So what they do is they find out the kind of stories you like to read. And then they feed you those stories. And what is happening is that America is going into silos. Listening to news media and stories that they want to hear. And sometimes the stories that are being told aren't even true. They're false. But people are still listening to, to them. And this is where it gets crazy. Okay? This is the, probably the craziest part of this documentary. Here are these social media execs that have grown up in the same American culture that I have that the major message that I have received and we have received is pluralism is good, truth is relative, there is not one overarching meta-narrative that we should listen to. That has been the message that I've been taught throughout my life in the United States, okay? Maybe you have too, and that's probably what those guys were taught. But now, on this documentary, these are non-Christians. This is what they say, and this is mind-blowing, so please track with me. They say there needs to be an objective reality, or we are in real trouble. And here is a quote from one of them. If we do not agree on what is true, or that there is such a thing as truth, we are toast. If we can't agree on what is true, then we can't navigate out of any of our problems. Do you understand how earth-shattering that comment is? Here is people that have been preaching to us relativism, relativism, that now realize if there is no overarching truth, we are in serious trouble. Now, I love bashing the culture, but I think the real problem might be with us. How do we know what is true? What is true? The word of the Lord. And if I had to condense the word of the Lord into something like Jesus did, what do you say? To love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the problem and what I'm probably the most worried about in the church in America right now. Instead of centering on the truth, the word of God, we are going down bunny trails of conspiracy theories and other realities rather than clinging to what God has clearly told us we are to do. Danny Carroll, it was a great conversation with him this week. Danny Carroll grew up in Guatemala. 
where there were revolutions and coups. And this is what he said to me. See, Dan, the most addictive thing that I've seen in society is actually ideologies. They can empower people and sway us from what is actually true. Okay. Maybe some of you don't track with those kind of things, so why don't I use a Star Wars analogy? How does that sound? Maybe some of you will track with Star Wars, okay? How is my Mandalorian people, right? Anybody been watching The Mandalorian? Oh, man, that is... If you you got to watch The Mandalorian. This is good stuff. And, and they, I like that they do it once a week so we don't binge it all at one time. We're having to, you know, do it once a week, which is fun. So, hey, hey The Mandalorian. Basically, it's this guy that lives by a code. What? This is the way, right? That's what he says. And he lives in a galaxy where there is tons of revolutions and other people fighting for different things. You know, there's the empire, there's the republic, all this stuff. Things that could sway him to different ideas. But he lives by doing the right thing, which is loving this baby Yoda, right? Despite everyone pulling for him to do this or to do that or be a part of this cause or that cause, he says, this is the way. Are we being distracted as the church? Rumors of wars, half-truths, appealing stories, someone telling us, oh, Joe Biden's going to ruin the world. We got to follow Donald Trump until the elections are rigged. We could follow these stories all over the place, couldn't we? And we want to. And in all of that, following these other stories, we lose this. The famine of the word that is very clear. This is more clear than any of those other messages. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And while we are going down bunny trails of false truths, we are not even listening to the word of God and what he's called us to do right before our eyes. Don't do it! And what will happen to our youth? What does it say in verse 13? In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. See, that is the hope of Israel. The young people, these are the people you look at, you go to their weddings, you go to the different places, look at the future of our culture. They look so good, but it doesn't look good now. That's what will happen to our youth in that day. Okay, youth. Maybe you've checked out to everything I've said right now. Maybe you can check back in. What have we given our youth? We've given them sports, academics. We've given them materialism. I just read an article in The Athletic about what rich people in New England are doing because they want their kids to have the most self-actualization. One thing they're doing is they're teaching them fencing so they can get into elite schools. And one family tells a story about one kid stabbing his brother with a saber. And at that point, the parents kind of woke him and said, why are we traveling from state to state learning fencing and stabbing each other? And one of my, sibling, one of my kids got stabbed in the jugular with 
a fencing pole. This is what we're living for? Just a microcosm of how bad it is in the United States. That we live in one of the most, you know, abundant times in history, and the suicide rate and the anxiety rate among our youth is off the charts. Why is that? Because we have given them a false hope. It's why, again, I can look at my daughter Morgan, and we can play club volleyball together and all those things, and after practice, she feels like maybe she did not play hard at all, that I can look at her and say, even if you never play Division I volleyball, even if you never play high school volleyball, you are loved by me and by God. Those things will come and go, but that will be eternal. I, teenagers here, you might not care a thing what I say. You say, this is a bit, bunch of BS, this whole Christianity thing. Let me tell you something. The day will come. In your marriage, in your job, in something, the day will come. And it will be so hard and so difficult. And you'll go, where is hope? And I hope you remember this preacher on this day that said there is a God that died for you and has something for you that is eternal. That even if your husband leaves you, even if they fire you from your job, even if you are bankrupt, he is still there. And he is still good. You see what happens? The virgins and the young men, they shall faint for their thirst. This is what you will get if the gospel is no more. But Israel continues in its worship in verse 14. They go to Samaria. They go to Dan. They go to Beersheba. And they worship at all these high places. Instead of going to Jerusalem, in the temple where God really is. And they have pictures of Yahweh that are not true to the true God. And they think that they are worshiping God by being in their different tribes and their different places to worship. But God says on that day, those places will fall. Do we do this to Jesus in the church in America? I'll go to this church that makes me feel good about myself, that gives me self-actualization messages. I'll go to this church that teaches me to be socially responsible and be woke. I'll go to this church that tells me if I follow Jesus, I'll be rich. I'll go to this church because I can be intellectual and think in high theology. I'll go to this. I'll go to that. But in the end, all of those places are simply human systems to get what we want instead of being places where we, our focus is on God himself. A God who has given us a plan of salvation through his son by the power of his spirit that will cause us, no matter what political affiliation we have, to confess our sins 
no matter what neighborhood that we live in, to love our enemy. No matter how much comes into our paycheck per month, to lay down our idols and to give to those that are in need. Those false places of worship will fall. And we will see the true Christ, the true King, that calls us to die to ourselves and to live for Him. Well, during this pandemic, there was no love cheese, was there? There was no going to the cabin. Could the denial that we're facing right now and things during the pandemic, could it wake us up? Could it wake us up and give us time still in the church in America to reset things, to look at things differently, and to act differently after this is over with our time, our money, in our energy, that God might have taken some of these things away from us in His grace and His love, that we might live differently.